As we begin our service this morning, I have a quick question for you. How many of you guys have ever been to the Canopy Lake Amusement Park in Salem? Oh, a lot. Okay, I've never been myself. I've only ever driven by. But I can imagine that for this area, it's a pretty nice little amusement park. Like, it's probably a great place to take your family, to spend a day, you know, just enjoying the weather and obviously the rides. Now, maybe you're the kind of person who goes to an amusement park and you're just there for the funnel cake and the balloon animals. Is that anyone? No, you don't have to raise your hand. But when we think about amusement parks, most likely we're going for what? The, exactly, yeah. We're going for the biggest, baddest roller coaster. What can give us like the biggest rush of adrenaline. At Canopy Lake Park, that roller coaster is called Untamed. I've got a picture of it here actually for you. You can see it on the screen. Anyone actually ever ride Untamed before? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I see Will's hand back there. Uh, Untamed. Based off of the website, let me just read for you some of the specs of this roller coaster here. Um, okay, you can see the highest point up there. I guess that's 72 feet up in the air. Uh, the up and down on that looks pretty intense. Uh, it, it goes like something like 40 miles per hour and lasts 50 seconds. Okay, for Salem, that's a pretty awesome looking roller coaster. However, if you're from the Midwest, <laughs> you probably grew up going to what? Cedar Point. Yes. Let me show you a picture of a ride I rode a couple years ago. It's called, excuse me, the Millennium Force. Okay, yeah, that thing's pretty wild. So I rode this a couple years ago. This is in Ohio. And I was with some guys my age, and I already don't like roller coasters to begin with. But when you're with a bunch of like 20-something-year-old guys and you're all hyping each other up, I mean, you gotta get on this thing. But Cedar Point does a great job of hiding the roller coaster until you're like next in line. So you, you really can't see what you're getting yourself into. Um, I gave you the specs on Untamed. This roller coaster, Millennium Force, is 310 feet tall, goes 90 plus miles per hour at its fastest, and lasts like two minutes long. And so I'm in line, you know, they got awnings and shrubs, so you can't really see what's happening. And then you're next, and you see this thing just like pop out of the sky. And you're like, what in the world? did I just get myself into up here? And to, like I told you, my friends, we were all hyping each other up. It culminates with the pastor, get this, that we're with, like screaming and chanting, real men don't wear the harness, you know? And he just sits down in this thing. Who knows what the attendants are thinking at this point? Like, who is this guy? Oh, he's just a pastor, you know, don't worry about it. But uh, so we're going up and up and up. I'm sure you can feel this thing like just click, click, click. As you go up, you're looking over Lake Erie. You just have like this hole, like you can see everywhere. And as you can tell by the picture, I mean, you're not taking the scenic route down. It's not like there's soft music and a nice little incline. I mean, this thing is 300 feet, almost straight down, 90 miles an hour. When I was on this thing, no joke, I could see my field of vision just going like this. I, I almost blacked out on it. It was wild. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I was kind of panicking, to be honest. It was crazy. But the point of this story is what? Untamed 
seems pretty cool until you go to Cedar Point. Right? We all know how comparisons work. It, much in the same way, it's like, you know, we have Mount Washington here in New England. It's pretty awesome. It's the biggest mountain in New England. But if someone from out west, say from the Rockies, were to come and look at Mount Washington, they'd be like, that's cute. You know, you've got a nice little <laughs> hill in your backyard there. We understand how comparisons work. This illustration was a prime example of that. You've got something that initially seems pretty cool, like Untamed. It's cool until you see the Millennium Forest and you're like, whoa. That is awesome. I could take a nap on Untamed after sitting through that thing. Paul is going to use this exact same tactic of comparing two things to show us the glory of the new covenant as it stands in contrast to the old. So let's look at our text together this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's been a while since we've been in 2 Corinthians, so we need a little bit of a refresher here. Look with me, if you will, at verses, end of verse 5, into verse 6, just to get a little bit of background as to what's happening here. Paul says, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And I want to draw our attention to what Paul says right there at the end. He says, hey, we are ministers of a new covenant. And that should stand in contrast, as you can see on the screen up there, with the old covenant. Now, just by way of a refresher, the old covenant is the contract or the agreement, we might say, that God entered into with Israel all the way back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. It was an agreement where God would bless Israel if they obeyed him, but if Israel disobeyed, they would experience judgment from God. There was a series of laws and commands to follow. When we think about the Old Covenant, we should be thinking the sacrificial system, the priestly system, the holidays, the law, the Ten Commandments, we might say. That's what we should think of when we see Old, custom, old Covenant, a lot of what takes place in the Old Testament. It is a significant part of our Bible, yes, but Paul is saying here in verse 6 that he is a minister of a new covenant. And at the end of verse 6, he gives us just a little teaser as to some of the contrasts between this old and new covenant. Look again at verse 6, the end of the sentence there. He says, it's not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And already we can see these contrasting terms beginning to take place here. One is of the letter, one is of the spirit, one kills but the Spirit gives life. But for our text this morning, beginning in verse 7, Paul really ramps up the contrast here. Let's read verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, and here is the comparison, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. We've got this chart that's going to be filled out throughout the course of this message, but I want us to compare, as the text does, the old covenant with the new. So the first thing that we see describing the old covenant is its title. Look what Paul calls it there in verse 7. He says, now if the ministry of death, that's what it's called, the ministry of death. And you might think, wow, that's kind of dark. 
that Paul would refer to such an integral part of our scriptures as the ministry of death? Look down at verse 9. Look what he calls it in verse 9. The ministry of condemnation. Now, this is not the only place in Scripture in which the Old Covenant is painted in this light. I've got just a list here that I'll read off for you. In Hebrews 10, the Old Covenant is called a shadow of things to come. In Galatians 3, it says that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Romans 4 says that the law brings wrath. And like I said a moment ago, we should be thinking, why is the Old Covenant portrayed in this light that it brings wrath, that it's the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. Why? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to turn to another passage of Scripture. I've actually got it up on the screen here for you. Romans chapter 10 sums it up really nicely for us. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Notice that last little phrase there. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is talking about the old covenant. There's this expectation set forth that if you obey it, you'll live. And we see this reiterated throughout the Old Testament. I'm telling you, look it up. You can find over and over and over again, do the commandments, and you live. We actually see this reiterated in the New Testament. There's a couple of people who come to Jesus, a lawyer and a rich young ruler, and they come asking Jesus a question. They say, what do we need to do to inherit eternal life? And does Jesus tell them, easy, believe in me, repent of your sins, and you'll be saved? Actually, no, he doesn't say that. Jesus says, you want eternal life? Keep the commandments strikes us as a little odd, doesn't it? That you could gain eternal life by keeping the commandments, but the opposite is also true. That failure to obey these commandments brings eternal death, brings punishment. Paul actually gives us a case study of this in Romans chapter 7. He's talking about the law and its role that it's played in his his own life, and he says, I would not know what it is to covet unless the law showed me. Maybe I can explain that a little bit more simply for you. There wasn't, let's say, a name with the face of the sin until the law is revealed to Paul. So yes, he's still a sinner apart from the law, but the law identifies his sin and says, you are a coveter. You are an adulterer. You do not obey or honor your parents. It condemns him because as he stacks his life up against the law, Paul says, I can't keep this. In fact, he says this in Romans chapter 7. This is his conclusion. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And Paul has taken exactly what we've been talking about up to this point, that if you obey the commandments, you will have life. Obedience to this old covenant brings eternal life, and Paul says, I can't do it. The very thing that promised life proved to be death to me. You see, the problem in this is that no one can keep 
this old covenant. We all sin. We all have broken this law. And therefore, this is why Paul can accurately say here in our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, that this is ultimately a ministry of death because no one can keep it. And we all face condemnation for our inability to keep this ministry. Let's move on to the second characteristic that we see here. That is this, verse 7. Now with the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone. Now this should bring to mind almost immediately something from the Old Testament that was carved in letters on stone, the Ten Commandments. Right? We read that God himself actually wrote what was inscribed on the tablets and that these tablets were housed in the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure that these were a very significant piece of history for Jewish people, and yet Paul is lumping even the Ten Commandments with this ministry of death title here. It's not going to become apparent to us till we contrast this with the characteristics of the New Covenant, what is so bad about being carved in letters on stone, but let me just give you a little hint. With the Old Covenant, it was dependent on God did his part, and you did yours. You had this external standard written in letters on stone that you had to obey. It was up to your willpower, to your own ability to obey this old covenant. Moving on now to the third descriptor here. We see this, that the old covenant came with glory. Verse 7 again, it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Now this morning for our scripture reading, we read this exact text of scripture where Moses comes down off the mountain and his face is shining. And he actually, as Paul says here, has to cover his face. Second Corinthians says that they could not gaze at his face. Exodus actually amplifies this just a little bit more and says that the Israelites were afraid to look at his face. Can you imagine someone coming down off a mountain and it's not golden hour, you know, the sun's not like just glowing on them. They are radiating light from their face. It terrified the Israelites and it didn't just happen once. We read in the text that every time Moses met with God, he had to cover his face. Now we need to pause here for just a second and consider the source of this glory. Moses' face wasn't shining because he saw the Ten Commandments. Moses' face was radiating because he was in the presence of God, the one who set this whole covenant in motion. It had a lot of glory, and I'm drawing attention to this for a reason. Because we might look at what I'll call the inefficiencies of the Old Covenant. I mean, we've spent a considerable amount of time kind of bagging on it. We might look at this Old Covenant, and it reflect poorly on God. As if we would say, well, if it's so bad, God maybe needed a second crack at it with a New Covenant to make it better. Maybe that's what we're thinking. Let me tell you, that is not the case at all. Paul actually addresses that very argument in Romans. People are saying, maybe there was a flaw in the Old Covenant. And Paul says, no, the law 
is holy and righteous and good. The problem with this old covenant is what? It's us. We're the problem. We bring sin into this equation. And we are what make it a ministry of death. We're the problem. As long as sin exists, no one is going to be able to keep this covenant. We're all under this ministry of death. And this, this brings us to our final point about the old covenant, and that is this. I'll just tell it for you. It's being brought to an end. Look at the text again. Verse 7. Ministry of death, we've seen that, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Final point here which was being brought to an end. Paul tells us this twice in the span of a couple of verses. Look again, if you will, at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory. Okay, the obvious question is, Paul is saying, there's an expiration date on this old covenant. And the question is, when was that? When was this thing terminated? When was it brought to an end? At the coming of Christ. And more specifically, at his death. Let me just recall to your memory a couple of things from the end of Christ's life that should confirm for us what's being described here takes place on the cross. Think first of all when Jesus cried out, It is finished. The old covenant, with its demands, had been fulfilled in the person of Christ. It had been paid in full. And on top of that, we see the curtain of the temple being torn in two, revealing that God no longer resides in the temple. This is not a system in which you have to come to God through a priest. God now resides in the new covenant in the human heart. If you've, if you've got some time later, let me encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. If this at all intrigues you, this comparison, Hebrews 8 and 9 is a glorious proof text about Jesus, the inaugurator of a new and better covenant. Now, Paul finishes his description of the old covenant in verse 7, and he asks this question in verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? In essence, Paul is saying, you think untamed is cool? I'm about to show you the millennium force, and it is awesome. Let's look at verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So we're going to work through this, and we're going to set in opposition to the Old Covenant 
what is taking place here as described in verses 9 to 11 in the New. So follow along with me, Will, if you will. The first one we had was this ministry of death. And here Paul calls the New Covenant the ministry of righteousness, where the law and the Old Covenant brought death and condemnation, the New Covenant brings righteousness. And this righteousness is not our own. We've been referring to Romans a lot already this morning. We've got to turn there. Romans chapter 5. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. We'll be back. Romans chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, another word for that would be made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified or made righteous by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And this text of scripture reveals to us that our righteousness, the ministry of righteousness as described in the new covenant, comes from whom? Jesus, the blood of Christ. And look at what it accomplishes for us. Verse 9 words it this way, negatively, we have been saved from the wrath of God. And look back up at verse 1, how it words it here. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to direct our attention to one more passage of scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21, the Musgraves have built their entire ministry around this verse. You can see it there on the screen. It reads this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. They call this the great exchange, where Jesus takes our sin upon himself, and we get his righteousness. Jesus bore the wrath, the penalty of our sin. And we walk away scot-free if we just put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is the essence of what Paul is getting at here. This is what he is building his argument on. I'm sure you can see it as I've been describing it. The new covenant has so much more glory than the old. Let's look at the second point of comparison between these two covenants. We're actually going to have to jump back up to verse 3 to consider it. So we're back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 3. Paul says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is in essence saying, listen, you guys are kind of like a walking letter of recommendation, except it's a little bit different in that you're not like words on a page or uh, chiseled letters into a piece of stone. No, you actually are a letter of recommendation by nature of the spirit dwelling inside of you, by it being written on your heart. This idea can be traced all the way back to the Old Testament, that a facet of the New Covenant would involve a change at the heart level. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31. It reads this. God says, For this is the covenant 
that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Here's how the new covenant is better. Let's look at the, actually I don't have the, uh, let's look at the, the comparison here. We see on the, your left-hand side, that it is carved in letters on stone. It's this external standard that you have to conform your life to. And with the new covenant, the change takes place at the heart level. From the inside out. God comes and he takes your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. This is the glory of the new covenant. Ezekiel actually elaborates on this a little bit more, and it adds one extra dimension to this new covenant. It reads this, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The new covenant, the new covenant promises the spirit dwelling inside of us. And this is our experience as Christians, is it not? The Spirit convicts us of sin. He draws Scripture to mind. He's at work in our hearts, sanctifying us and drawing us closer to the Lord. And we live righteously, not because we're trying to adhere to a list of Ten Commandments and trying to earn favor. And, you know, our righteousness does not hinge on our conformity to the law, we have been declared righteous in Christ, and so we live righteously out of love and obedience to what he has done for us. This is the new covenant. The third point of contrast about the new covenant is that it far exceeds the old in glory. Paul can't get over this. I mean, in these last four verses here, the word glory shows up a ton of times. Uh, I, I think particularly noteworthy is verse 10. So we'll just look at that one together. Paul says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory, speaking of the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And I hope that as I've been talking, you've seen how the glory of the new covenant has far surpassed the glory of the old because without the work of Christ, we would still be living in a day and age in which animal sacrifices are required, access to God is limited, obedience to the law is required of us, but Christ has come and he's eliminated all of that and he's given us direct access to God and he has given us his righteousness. This is a glorious thing, his spirit, dwells inside of us. There's no comparison. The new covenant is far better. And there's one more thing we have to consider from the text here. That is this. It's permanent. Look with me, if you will, at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, at first glance, permanence might not seem to be the most illustrious characteristic. We might look at the previous things and say, 
Those are really nice and permanence. Yeah, glad we could tack that on as well. But I would argue that the permanence of the new covenant is a glorious thing that should cause our hearts to be enraptured by the work of Christ. Consider with me this. The old covenant, it's said of it that it is being brought to an end. It's being replaced by something better, by the new covenant. But the new covenant is permanent. It's not like one day down the line, we're going to have to have another covenant because the new covenant has somehow lost its glory. No, not at all. The work of Christ is sufficient and it is eternal. There's no need for another covenant. Hebrews 13 refers to the new covenant in this way. It says that the atoning work of Christ is the blood of the eternal covenant. This will never fade into being obsolete. Christ's work is sufficient and it is eternal. This covenant has no end because it's not dependent on the blood of bulls and goats. It is dependent on the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. It doesn't get any better than Christ. And I hope that you've seen that from our text this morning in this comparison. I hope that was helpful in just stacking up what the text does for us and this comparison that Paul is outlining for us. So, so, so what do we do with this? Because there's not a go and do thou likewise in the text here. We just have this comparison, and it's an awesome thing. We should leave here this morning worshiping. What do I do with this text? Well, remember the context of this passage here. Paul has just finished talking about how he is a minister of this new covenant. And the change that has taken place in the Corinthian church is so obvious that he says, anyone can read this. You yourselves are a letter of recommendation. Anyone can read what has taken place in the Corinthian church. And I wanna trace that even back to the chapter prior and make this point. Look at verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What should we do with this text? Be the aroma of Christ. If the new covenant has taken place in your heart, if you are a new creature as scripture describes it, then be like the Corinthian church and showing everybody. Let it be able to be read by all. Let this fragrance of Christ that Paul has just talked about a couple chapters prior flow from you. In verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul is actually going to say that you need to be bold. You have boldness. The Spirit dwells inside of you. You are no longer under the ministry of condemnation. So live like it. If these things are true of you, let the world see it. Be the aroma of Christ. And secondly, be thankful for the finished work of Christ. 
any meditation for any length of time of what the old covenant would require of you should cause you to be so glad that God has sent Christ to inaugurate the new covenant. If you give any thought to this idea that you have to offer sacrifices regularly for your sin and that it is on you to conform to this standard, that gets exhausting pretty quick. So thank God that Jesus has come and done away with all that. That you have been declared righteous, not because of how good you are or what you have done, but because of Christ. Be thankful. Sometimes gratitude escapes us as Christians, but that should not be the case with something like this. This should never lose its potency we should be reminded often, wow, we have a glorious thing. Like Paul, we should marvel. The old covenant was good, it served a purpose, God used it mightily, but the new covenant is way better. There is no comparison. So we're actually gonna have occasion to give thanks in song, but before we do that, let's pray together this morning. Lord, we love you. We are so grateful that you have provided Christ for us. That the work that he accomplished on the cross is eternal. It never ends. It needs no successor. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a righteousness that is not our own but comes from Christ. So help us to live like it to be this aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, to let our lives be changed and different, and for people, all people, to be able to just tell at a glance, you are not like us. Let us represent Christ. Thank you so much for him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.